Morning! Off to see the groundhog? Think it'll be in early spring? Hi, how you doing? This is Ken Hudson Campbell from Groundhog Day saying hi. Good morning! Welcome to Sandwiches at Irregular Hours, episode 149 for February 2nd, 2021. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hessenflow. And I'm Pam Bedore. And we have arrived in February. How about that? 2021, the year that I, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm sure it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. I've brought a book to the book club this month. I have brought my favorite book of 2019. This is Recursion by Blake Crouch. Deja Vu. Yes, Chip. We read this book together in January of 2020, one year ago, which seems like uh, a lifetime ago, doesn't it? <laughs> but back when we were free. <laughs> back when we could hug people. <gasps> exactly. Remember? What's this, what's this hugging thing? It was eliminated in 2020. <laughs> Well, <laughs> there is a, a warning in this book about your social network, and maybe we'll get to that. This is a very interesting philosophical view from the sci-fi thriller writer Blake Crouch about memory, about disease, about epidemic. Uh, there's, there's some interesting opening scenes in this book, right, Pam? Sure. So this was my first time reading this novel. I really am enjoying it so far. So I just read book one. It was hard to stop, but it was great. And I actually really liked where it started with a Vladimir Nabokov quote, time is but memory in the making. Now, you know, I'm very interested in questions of temporality. I wasn't familiar with that quote by, of course, a really famous writer. And I like that idea that time is sort of a pathway through the making of memory. And I think he's just as interested in temporality as in memory. And so it was a great quote to start to start a really strong novel. And I did think the first scene was really, really compelling. And did you, did you guys like that first scene as well? That first scene is just absolutely incredible. It's intense. There's something that's really on the, the, the cusp of it. So it starts off with ultimately what will be a suicide. I'm going to jump off this building and you've got this police officer just racing through trying to stop this from happening. And so it just creates this, this beautiful scene that all of a sudden you go, what's really going on? Why is she talking this way? And you know what can we do? Because we have this introduction of FMS, this false memory syndrome, where this young lady is despondent and, and deciding to commit suicide because she has a memory of a life that she now is sure is a false memory, that this never happened. She wasn't married to this man. They didn't have a child together. All of that was not true, but she feels that she can't live with the two different memories living in her head at the same time. And this is very much a novel about dissonance. 
right? That dissonance between two sets of memories coexisting in a single head. And what I really liked about the opening sequence is that it would have been a great sequence if it was just a thriller, right? It would have been a perfectly good, well-written sequence. We're in Barry's head. We're like, come on, buddy, you can do this. I actually recently read a very similar sequence in an, in another novel for my Canadian crime fiction project. You know, a cop trying to prevent someone from committing suicide. It's a it's a compelling moment. You really care. But here, you add that science fiction twist. You guys know I like the hybridity between detective and sci-fi. We see it here again, just like we saw it in Flash Forward, because FMS, of course, is not a disease that we have. And this notion of having false memories is not something contagious in our world. But boy, what a fascinating kind of pandemic to consider the contagion of false memory. Whoa, that just blew my mind as a sort of added sequence to this quite familiar story that we've seen in plenty of novels before. And, and once again, it's contagious. Yeah. Some, and it's contagious, could be that you, you're near the person and it could be that you are the parent of a person or a friend of a person. Wasn't there like a, a wedding callback or something that the whole family remembered this wedding happening but it didn't happen the false memory is throughout the entire social network and i love how blake crouch uses that term social network there not to refer to you know facebook and twitter and and he says that in the text oh you mean like facebook and twitter no 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 i mean social network as in a group of people who are socially familiar that's brilliant so of course when you see that a whole bunch of people share a false memory now you're thinking whoa 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 this isn't the any data i'm gonna get about this fictional disease is quite possibly inaccurate so it, as of that moment, when when he talks about the wedding that everyone remembers, I'm starting to think, oh, okay, people are messing with reality. How's it working? Matrix time. And it's interesting at this beginning stage where we, the reader, are being given some information. It's very similar to the beginning of our pandemic that we're living through right now, where the unknowns we're making it so that we could conjure up all sorts of possible things that were maybe happening based on the information we were given. And and Blake is giving us those uh, false memories and red herrings in the beginning of this book so well. Yeah. And it's interesting, the structure of this is a dual narration, which is super common in romance, but not very common in science fiction or thriller. Now you sometimes will get a dual narration in crime fiction where you're with the criminals for a while, you're with the detectives for a while. So I mean, that's not unusual, but this whole like your male narrator, your female narrator, that really comes out of the romance genre. So I was like kind of compelled by the numerous generic investments that are happening in this novel, just in the first book. So we'll see where that ends up going. But I was curious for you guys, we have these two different narrations and there are these two stories being told. And I was listening to the audiobook, So it took me a while to realize each section starts with a date. 
it yes. took a while to realize that Helena's story is happening 10 years earlier than Barry's story. But we have Barry Sutton, this NYPD cop who's lost a child and who's, you know, sort of struggling <laughs> his life. Good, good detective struggling to, to get things together. And then we have Helena Smith, who's a neuroscientist in Palo Alto, who's just a few years younger than than Barry. She's in her late 30s, and she's really trying to solve Alzheimer's disease in order to help her mother. So let me ask you guys, which was your favorite story out of these? Anytime you have dual narration, it's hard as an author because you have to make them roughly equivalent so that people aren't like, oh, this story, I don't, I'm, I'm into this one, so I don't want to move between. It's not a fair question. These are both good stories. Okay, so did you think he met the balance of making them equally interesting? Yeah, because Barry, what do you get from Barry? You get a little bit of like, you know, we're, we're hard drinking and, and we're, uh, we've got this, um, you know, we've got the action part of it. And with Helena, what do we have? We've, we've got this, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist. I've got this mission that I really want to solve. I, you know, I want to make this chair. I want to solve Alzheimer's. Uh, I want to basically make the world a better place. And, you know, of course, it sounds like corruption, but we, we don't know that yet. But you, you've got this wealthy benefactor saying, hey, listen, your money's running out. I'm going to, uh, what if I just gave you unlimited funds? You can work on this. And she's like, I can solve the thing that, that I've, you know, I was put on this earth to solve. They're such very different stories and, and written in such a way that we see the difference between, yes, the detective who's trying to help people, but is stuck in his own personal story about his daughter has died and that broke up his marriage and he's become an alcoholic and he's got so many personal problems. And then you've got Helena Smith, who is this neuroscientist who is on a mission to save people to help people in a very different way and we don't get tied up into her personal story she is on a mission and how interesting is it that Barry is from New York while Helena is from California the opposite coasts of this country as well there's so many opposites going on and, and, and you just brought that up that's really interesting because he's he's New York Certainly, you could argue the center of the world, at least financially, for the world. Uh, right North now. Carolina is the center of the known universe. Well, been decided. That's, that's not really true. I mean, we, we get our news from New York like everyone else. But New York certainly is the engine that may run the world uh, as of right now, uh, as of today, maybe. Um, and then California, certainly, and then Palo Alto, particularly that Silicon Valley, certainly where, you know, if there's 100 patents, issued in the United States, probably 99 of them are coming from that area. Certainly the area that's that's having such a dramatic influence in, in changing the world as we know it right now. This is, I mean, it's certainly, I mean, that's, that's, I'm so glad you brought that up because I didn't even think about that. The center of technology and the center of I don't know. Industry? Is New York still the center of industry? I wouldn't say industry. I would say finance. Basically, they, finance. They're, they're, the, they're the engine that pays for the world. Now, mm -hmm. you, you, know, you can argue whether that's moving to China. You could argue whether Tokyo or London or where, wherever you want to say it is. But certainly New York is uh, incredibly uh, powerful in the world. 
I just love the time shift too, where Helena's story is from 2007 and Barry's story starts in 2018. And that's a big gap that uh, if you're good at reading, you'll see that these two people will meet at some point in their combined future. And uh, I, I'm intrigued by book one, even though I've read this book before. So, <laughs> So I'm going to answer my own question a little differently than you guys answered. Cause so you guys both thought that these two, these two uh, narrative strands were equally powerful. Yeah, I agree. And so I actually didn't think so at all. Wow. Okay. So, so yeah, now I'm like, hmm, interesting. Cause it feels to me like Barry is a really well-drawn character. So he has lost his child. You know, it's interesting. We don't have a word for a person who's lost a child right we have like a word for a person who's like lost a parent the orphan we have a widow a widower but like the idea of losing a child is so terrifying to anyone who's a parent we don't have a word for that wow and and i think that one of the early scenes where he meets with his ex-wife and of course losing a child it's very 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 difficult for a couple to stay together after that tragedy and so when he and his wife meet on their dead daughter's birthday as they do every year it's just devastating so this Mm -hmm. is a tragic figure who is nonetheless committed to his job as a cop so i really really care about barry and i see where he's coming from he struggles emotionally he's struggling a little bit with drinking um you know he has a few friends that we meet so to me he's a well-drawn character that I can identify, like not identify with, but that I, I have a reader engagement with him that's quite strong. Okay. I didn't feel the same about Helena, and I mean, I I was really trying to, but I don't know anything about her. Like she is, you know, a, a driven and focused scientist who's deeply committed to her parents. Okay, that's great, but I'm hoping there's something else in her life, and if there isn't, she should be kind of like devastated by the loneliness and emptiness of her life. I just, I don't buy that notion of, you know, science is everything for some people because hello, like I work with scientists all the time, you know, uh, in my academic and professional life. And this, I don't know. So she didn't have enough outside. She's just a scientist. She's just a woman with a mission. And I wish that she had more to her and, you know, her, even like as she's interacting with Marcus Slade, this, you know, wealthy tech founder who's funding her research, you know, she doesn't have the kinds of questions or, I don't know. I'm hoping she'll come to life for me a little bit more as we read on. Jelena was brought up though, um, when, when she was given the offer, her funding was running out. She's 38 years old, which the, 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 the statement I didn't really, I didn't like this statement where she goes, it might as well have been 99 years old or something of that nature. You know, she's 38 and if she doesn't have her, the great idea by that time, uh, you, you might, you might as well just consider yourself ancient history. And she had to, basically she was looking for funding. She, she may not be in Palo Alto at that point. She may have had to find a different place to get, to get, to teach or to do her research. So we, we get a little bit of the stakes that she's she's running into. But you're right. You know, we don't know that much about her. Maybe we'll know a little later. 
I would agree that Barry is certainly the protagonist of our story, seeing as we know so much about his character. And and the answer is yes, we will learn more about Helena as the story moves on. And uh, it, you'll, you'll love it, Pam. Okay. <laughs> Great. Spoilers. <laughs> and I'm already really enjoying it. I just wondered about the unevenness of that initial development. I, I don't disagree with you, um, but knowing the future as I do, you'll see. <laughs> wow. I find it so interesting how Blake Crouch has written such interesting philosophy into this first book. There is so much to think about, about how time works, how memory works, because that is the centerpiece of this, is the idea of memory and how you can trust your memories and how you sometimes can't trust your memories. Going back to uh, what we talked about, Several times with Flash Forward, the idea of nostalgia is brought up here. And one of the quotes that I loved is, Nostalgia is as much an analgesic as alcohol for Barry. That the feeling of memory is just as soothing as that escapism that is the alcohol for him. Isn't that, we, we experience that every year around Christmas time, right? For a large part of the population. It's, it's always like this nostalgic moment or this perfect moment. And, and whether, you know, the attempt and the, the failure of, 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 uh, of putting it together at that level. You know, and for a lot of people, because they don't have it, certainly it could be as devastating as alcohol because depression and certainly any number of things, not meeting expectations. You're right. And, and he doesn't touch on depression directly i mean we certainly see him being very sad at sure. talking about the the loss of his daughter but depression as a specific part of memory is not discussed in book one interesting one of the things that i found really fascinating is that helena's working on alzheimer's a treatment for alzheimer's uh -huh. while barry is sort of working through this false memory syndrome so I was curious what you guys thought, like, what are the challenges and affordances of juxtaposing a real and super devastating disease like Alzheimer's to a fictional disease like FMS, which even by the end of book one, we're kind of starting to doubt is a real, you know, a natural occurring disease. I mean, obviously we all know people with Alzheimer's, know our friends whose parents have Alzheimer's, whatever, I looked up a couple stats just to kind of get the get some data here. Alzheimer's affects about 6% of people age 65 or over. I knew it was a lot, but that is higher than I'd realized. It accounts for 60 to 70% of all dementia. And you have a life expectancy of three to nine years, typically after diagnosis. Now we all know people who've gone drastically differently from that. And of course, it is degenerative, which is the difficulty of it, including memory loss, mood swings, loss of self-care motivation. And as middle-aged folks like ourselves know, it places an enormous burden on caregivers. Sure. And I, to me, it's like the scariest disease to think about as we go forward. I mean, something physical feels much more manageable than something like Alzheimer's to me. And partly because there's currently 
no effective treatment. You can treat some of the symptoms a little bit, but nothing especially effective. So to take such a devastating disease that each of us knows people who have 6% of people age 65 or over and like put it, juxtapose it with this fictional disease. Really interesting. What, what did you guys think of that move? You grabbed something right there because we are, you know, a product of our memories. Um, it, 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 for good or bad, it helps us view ourselves today, uh, our, our situations we're in. Could be anything that we, we, we experience. Could, you know, once again, for good or bad, come back from our experiences through our memories. You start stripping that away from us. I mean, this, this book is really doing a good job at showing how upsetting it can be if, if all of a sudden the person you're playing cards with every day for 30 years can no longer remember how to play the card game, that they're lost. And you as the, the spouse or the, 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 the caregiver, however you want to put it, you're, you're also, you know, what do I do? How, how can I make this better? And that's the real cha challenge with it is that there may not be anything you can do. And the real, I mean, I, I've had clients who've had um, dementia and Alzheimer's and, and it, that's the, the real, it, you can see how frustrating it is for them. Everything that came so easy earlier now is a struggle. And the people that you, you love most, um, you forget. And, and, the music therapy is an area also that usually we can go through where that somehow is bypassing. Mm -hmm. And for people who are experiencing memory loss, it taps into that area where maybe you can remember the, the how to play an instrument or how to play a song or, or something of that nature. But somehow it's bypassing. You can't, you, you don't know your spouse or you don't know the, your, your children or but you don't remember how to do something. I've, I've always said to my children, if I ever lose my memory, just put on the 80s channel and I will know every stinking word of every stinking song because I know every stinking word of every stinking song. It's that left brain and right brain. The fact that music is the only piece of our life that crosses both the logical left and the artistic right. And it that music is in there. I, I, where, where we're going to go with this is at some point in the future, you know, when Steve, you know, 50 years from now when he's older, um, th this will be the case. And uh, it'll be like the, the trick is like uh, your kids will bring their kids to come see you. This is your grandfather. Watch this. We're going to put on this music and uh, watch, them, watch them sing. <laughs> George Michael lives again. Yes, that's, yes, that's exactly how this is going to go. I, I love the idea that Blake Crouch writes here that memory is everything. There is no present. Everything that you think of as present is just your memory of something that has already happened. By the time it happens, it's already passed, and it's only a memory. And those ideas of how we sense the world and what percentage of the world we sense, how much of the things that we see get added to our memory, and the questioning one's own memories 
a big part of this conversation in book one? And what do you really remember? Uh, especially when we get to the part where Barry thinks about his daughter and that last moment where he got to speak to his daughter before she was killed. There, There's some bad pieces to that memory. It's not perfect. He he chooses to remember it a certain way and uh maybe it wasn't exactly the the way it happened on the same note it just you, you're you're prompting something there's plenty of studies i'm just going to blanket this that show that even if we all three went someplace and we were at the same exact moment we were experiencing the same way our memories first of all are our own perceptions of the of the moment and we could be not looking at the things as, as they really are. And later on, if we were introduced to a narrative, that narrative could become our memory of it. So, you know, it's very hard. I mean, even how, how humans perceive things can change. And certainly we, we block things out and, and uh, heighten things or any number of things. That, that. I think you're talking about the, the studies that have done with eyewitness reports. Sure. How eyewitnesses, people who were there, who witnessed a crime, they might all have a different perspective and therefore a different narrative for what actually happened. And the truth lies somewhere in between. That's, that's pretty amazing that we humans go through our day and... Uh, commit some parts of it to memory and other parts of it are just just wind just not happening eyewitness reports are, are not always accurate mm -hmm. I, another quote that i'm going to bring up is nothing can be controlled only endured this is a pretty deep psalm philosophical... 31 7 yeah. No. <laughs> yes. Turn in your missalettes to page 17. Let's all sing together. Nothing can be controlled, only endured. <laughs> it's very Catholic of you, Chip. <laughs> the idea, especially in the, the pandemic that we're in, thinking about how we can control our situation. Uh, it's, some of it is really futile. We can only endure some parts of our life. And, and I think we've all experienced that in the last year. Sure. I mean, I think that Crouch is doing a lot too with the idea of the self. Like, how are we constructed? What is our perception? How, how do perception, memory, selfhood interact? And then he brings up the Mandela effect, which we I think we talked about last week, two weeks ago, that we introduced the Mandela effect to you, Pam. The, the Bernstein Bears. That's I, right. I, we did talk about this with Flash Forward, didn't we? I do remember this. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. <laughs> I think maybe this is where Chip got the memory of talking about the Mandela effect was when, when we read this book the first time a year ago. The idea that some mass memories seem to be incorrect, that maybe somebody has messed with the timeline and has changed the timeline and some people remember one set of things and other people remember other sets of things. The Berenstain Bears. How do you spell that? Is it 
Stain or Steen? Baron Steen. No, it's Baron Stain. A-I-N. And some people swear that they remember it the other way. Some people swear that Nelson Mandela died in prison while the rest of us recall that he was released from prison and became the president of South Africa. So where do these memories come from? Are they false memories? Hmm. Well, there's, there's a lot of theories on, on how, how humans pass knowledge uh, on and how animals pass knowledge on to each other. The idea that um, I think it was if one person learns how to do something, like here we go. Marconi was created the radio. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then there's a whole bunch of different patents that were coming out right around the same time. Uh, The Wright brothers in the United States are considered the, the, the the birth of uh, a flight here in North Carolina. Just throw that out there. Um, uh, You know, from Ohio for those Ohio listeners out there. But at the same time, there were other people who came out with, with, uh, with other flying machines, airplanes and stuff like that. And it could be, and this is certainly we're getting to the esoteric theory, is that humans have a, a consciousness and a connection that basically can, as one group of human learns how to do something, potentially could pass on to others. Um, that certainly is on the most esoteric of the um, of the ways of how we we view and pass knowledge on. Um, and so, I mean. Pam started bringing up uh, a little bit of the ideas of, of, of how individuals view themselves, how self, and Crouch is kind of, what is he's kind of playing with that. He's showing some different ways of looking at that, and the sensory deprivation tank was one of them, wasn't it? Oh, I love the idea of the sensory deprivation tank. In this story, we have a science experiment where we're going to fix memory. I mean, that's at least how it's presented to us, the reader, is memory is broken in these Alzheimer's patients, and we're going to solve the problem of memory by giving these people some way to get back to those memories, to map the mind. We've talked so many times about the coming singularity, the idea that all of your mind, everything that makes up your identity and your thinking and your memories, everything that's happening in your brain is all just electrical. It's just electricity, a pattern of on and off, zeros and ones. And theoretically, we could get to the singularity where we could map every one of those electrical impulses and mimic them in a powerful enough computer. We have a little bit of that conversation here, and the idea of the sensory deprivation tank, where this scientific experiment takes a person and deprives them of all of their senses. It is totally dark, there's no feeling, they are laying in uh, water that is exactly the same temperature as their skin, and it is salty enough that they are totally just floating in it to absolutely remove all of current being and then exploring what we could get to when we are just thinking. Uh, the idea of self here is, yes, very deep, Chip. These, these um, exist in real life, by the way. I know that they're downtown Chicago. And for people who have insomnia and stuff like that, they can go and, and sit in one or being in one for an hour, whatever the time is. And it could be like a whole night's sleep or it could be more than that. 
So anyway, it's certainly an interesting, interesting place to play. Pam, are you ready for a sensory deprivation tank to just be outside of all of your senses? Uh, no, thank you. Very interesting. Very interesting for someone else. Thank you. That's not the part that gets me. That's not the terror part. I'm okay with the sensory deprivation tank. For me, the paralytic agent is the terror of this mm -hmm. book one, <laughs> where they inject you forcefully with this drug that you are completely paralyzed. You are completely conscious, but you can't move your body in any way. That's terrifying to me. The, the metaphors of home and residence and hotel are very interesting in this first book. Did you notice that theme of home and where you're living and what how that impacts everything that you do in this? Tell me more about that because that, that's an interesting that's interesting. There's so many different types of residences. There's there's apartments, there's hotels. The, the memory hotel that Barry is brought to, for instance, mm -hmm. is, is a very interesting use of the term so that we see and get a feeling for how we react to other people and how those memories and nostalgia all intertwine into our relationships. Okay, okay. Fascinating. <laughs> I hope that, that we're doing this first book justice. We, we are really enjoying this first book, but I'm, I'm just throwing out all kinds of ideas, and, and you guys are going, yeah, that's good. <laughs> no, th this book is really good. I, and in fact, I didn't bring this up. As I was preparing for this, we were doing the audiobook also, and I was driving, and I was driving with my mother. My mother was so into this book, she enjoyed it on such a level that when I stopped it and I said, well, this is what we're going to talk about. She goes, well, how am I going to read the rest of this book? <laughs> so we, we will figure out a way so that my mother can complete this book. We'll have to go on another road trip together. Um, but the, the grand part of it is this book is compelling. It, this, it sets you up pretty well and certainly moves you along. In addition to the, the, horror that we've expressed so far in book one there is an experiment that leads to the death of uh, a heroin addict that signs up for this experiment uh, some really unethical science that's happening in book one and in this experiment his heart and lungs stop so he is clinically dead but Later on, Barry actually goes through a very similar situation where his heart and lungs stop in a different experiment, but he reports that he can still hear, he can still think. Is that really true? At, how, how does that work scientifically? Like how long do the electrical impulses continue? Uh-huh. Yeah. I, All right. So I, I'm, I'm having a false memory. Science fiction on this topic, obviously. I think I'm having a false memory. In the book, is this the part where he talks about the, is it the dopamine that's being released into the, uh, it's not dopamine, it's it's some chemical that's being released into the brain when we're dreaming. And then when we pass away, all of it's released. And that's why we all, you, your entire uh, past uh, may may flash before your eyes, the, the, um, the bright lights and the walking and stuff like that. Is, is this part of the story? 
those stories that that are so common there is there is a mention of that in here that okay. those stories that are so common about all of the life flashing before your eyes and the the tunnel of light there's got to be some basis for those and that's part of the study here of what happens to our memories and to our minds sure and, and, and to your question right here you know you're sort of in between life and death at that moment you know you may be physically dead but your mind is still active it's still mm-hmm. firing and that mm-hmm. certainly wouldn't that be hell yeah yeah <laughs> yeah this is pretty terrifying the some of these scenes there's there's okay so of the genres that we've covered so far there's detective there's definitely a mystery happening here this is a thriller wherein we are given evidence that something is happening that is scary this is the horror portion for me it's interesting because in flash forward which we talked about last last month um the narrator says at one point that seeing the future is one of the greatest desires of humankind i'm not quoting that quite correctly but immortality is another one right and so this notion of putting people in a sensory deprivation tank going right up to the edge of death but then like somehow moving past death cheating death in some sense here it's for basically time travel or memory travel mm-hmm. that is that kind of taps into one of these great desires that that humans have always had as well which is to cheat death but they don't cheat death in this story do they they make it look like they're going to revive the heroin addict in this experiment they've got the paddles ready but then the bad guy the antagonist locks the door and says, no, 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 you can't communicate with the lab. And theoretically, that guy dies, right? Dun, dun, dun. But does he? But does he? Because then suddenly, everything changes. The memories of a different life come flooding into all of the characters that we've come to know at in the story at that time and there's your science fiction element where we've gone from this is science to this is something that can't be but in the storyline it is this is this is why this becomes a fun book to read (laughs) should we talk about quantum computing have we talked about quantum computing enough how Blake Crouch actually name-checks D-Wave as the computer system that they have installed to do all the calculations for this science fiction. D-Wave is a real company that is really working on quantum computers. The principle of quantum computing is that Schrodinger's cat that we've talked about before, the superposition. Computers operate on zero and one off and on, nothing and something. But on the quantum realm, there can be a superposition where it's both on and off simultaneously. And right now in quantum computing, we've gotten up to, uh, Google says that they have a 53 
quantum bit computer operating. IBM reports that they have a 65 quantum bit computer as of September of 2020. In principle, the quantum computer with 300 quantum bits could perform more calculations in an instant than there are atoms in the visible universe. The computing power that we're talking about is is almost unimaginable. The the amount it, it, it of, is unimaginable. Humans can't imagine things on that scale. We're just not designed for that. And the idea that we read in Flash Forward was Robert J. Sawyer described a future in which a computer could create every possible permutation of every thought of every human. And some bored student might make those calculations in a simulation one day. And, and we might, um, we might be living in a simulation, Mr. Musk. Yeah. Elon Musk sort of has, has brought that out as, as a possibility. The matrix certainly has two. So there you go. Have the red pill or the blue pill. What are you going to have? It's interesting that we're seeing the science end of this in this book compared to what we saw in Flash Forward, where the science that was being done was not trying to reach any kind of uh, memory or, or time travel. But here we are working on memory in this story. So, guys, it feels to me like whenever we read science fiction, we always have to ask which real world anxieties or questions this novel is addressing. So obviously we're only at the end of book one, we'll come back to this, but what do you think are the real world questions that Blake Crouch's recursion is considering? For me, it's about personal loss so far. It's about the loss of a child, especially when we're talking about children. That loss has blanketed Barry's entire existence from that moment and the the nostalgia it's the wrong word for personal loss memories but that that longing for that moment is the thing that that is the biggest part for me wow. see I, i'm thinking just bigger it's almost dehumanizing the part where the experiment goes on with the hermit addict and you know, he's, he's not even considered, his, his life is not even considered other than to, to be an end to this experiment. If it works out well for this, this guy goes to rehab is what it sounds like. But if it doesn't, you know, he's dead. And the guy's like, oh, well, we'll move to the next one. This idea of maybe reality of, of what is our reality. And then if we are part of a reality, are we just a tool of part of it? Hmm. Well, so you think the novel is really like exploring unethical science practices? Possibly. I mean, there's we, we, we've been through a four-year period, and we have a vaccine that's out right now. And many people are, a larger group of people than maybe in the past, educated people. These are the anti-vaccination group. They are the group that somehow says that, they don't trust the reality that we're dealing with right now. There's this whole group of people that are denying the, 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 the reality that we they're living in. And uh, they're becoming much more vocal of it. I, I don't know if this book's ultimately addressing that part of it, but certainly this idea that you are the tool to 
the information that other people will benefit from. Yeah. It's certainly part of the zeitgeist of 2019, for sure. Certainly. No, so that's absolutely what I feel like this book is addressing. Obviously, it's my first time reading, and I'm only sure. one. But it feels like it's addressing that postmodern anxiety that we lack trust in a shared reality right now. And so the only way that you can really like make way for FMS as something to even consider, this notion of people having false memories or false perceptions, is in a postmodern world, I think where we have an anxiety that sometimes we meet people and we really can't even agree on anything almost, you know? And, and I think, yeah, like, so the prevalence of conspiracy theories in 2020, but of course, conspiracy theories, which have been around for a few years, but have only recently come to light in this major way. And so, I mean, I absolutely think there's a real epistemological underpinning to this novel that's really questioning, how do we know what we know? How do we agree what is real? And we've talked about this before, the idea that the information that is being fed to you through the internet is different from the information that is being fed to me. You are seeing different headlines. You are getting different information. Your reality really is not shared sometimes and that's terrifying what how, what an interesting proposition right there because think of the greatest generation this generation that came from rural settings or very poor backgrounds and the government the g-men came in and said hey and you're going to eat this you know bread and you're going to have meats and you're going to have vegetables and stuff like that and you know we live in this world where for for many people there's men all these things are available to them, but you know, do they give you the right science on that? Are you eating the right amount of of that? Are they, you know, um, you know, why are people getting sick because of this? You know, the, the, going back to this old group where where older uh, generation where they came in and said you need to get vaccinated because it's going to make you healthy. You know, all these things that were brought up and that made society what it is today are being just micro attacked by individuals. And it's just, you know, the, you, we've got smart people who are falling down these interesting rabbit holes. How do you create your baseline when, you know, we, we, we're not having shared experiences? And the more, the more studies we do about perception and memory, the more we understand how faulty our own perceptions and memories are. And so the fact that we don't always share a sense of reality is possibly a problem of neurotransmitters, right? <laughs> wow. You know, it's 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 a problem of like an overly datafied world, but perhaps part of it is also an electric impulse in our brain's problem. So it's a very, it, we live in a very complicated moment and it makes perfect sense that this novel is from 2019 and becoming all the more relevant. It's so funny that you guys read it in January, 2020 and then rereading it in 21, you're having quite a different experience because so many of the themes he's interested in have been discussed in a much more elaborated and public way. You know, even just the notion of social groups moving from in-person to online and the fact that we've been talking to each other many times per week and we haven't been, I've never been physically in the same space with you two. 
his first choice in the closet. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, so yeah, so I think this is a really, I'm super happy that we're reading this book is, is where I want to conclude with it. Good. Because I do think that the anxieties that he's considering are even more pressing a year and a half later than they were when the novel just came out recently. What, what a blessing it is to have it available then. And certainly to be able to grab the Zykai stuff at this particular moment. Yes, I, I'm glad that you're enjoying this book. I hope that everybody out there is enjoying it just as much and getting into some of the questions. So let's let's prepare for, for next week. We got through book one. And now we've, we're, what are we going to read for next week to prepare us for our next conversation? All right. Our next conversation, we are going to read books two and three. They're slightly shorter books. There's five books total. So we're going to combine books two and three for next week. And we will get into some of the the uh, time travel aspects of this story, where we actually saw a little bit of time travel happening at the end of book one. And we'll see where that goes in books two and three. So wait a minute. Do you like time travel, Steve? I've read some time travel books every once in a while. Um, Essentially, Pam, it's the only genre I read. So when you make me read books about serial killers, I'm okay. It's fine. I'll just turn my head away from them when the the really gross bits come up. (laughs) As long as they're time traveling serial killers, you're in. Right. Uh, there's There's a story. As long as it's not Victorian. (laughs) <laughs> a simpler time maybe <laughs> all right so we're all prepared for next week are we chip do we have enough information to survive another week well only if we can come back next week pam are you ready for for more time travel in book two yes i've been waiting i got to the end of book one and then i'm just waiting to talk to you guys so i can't wait to start reading book two and three Excellent. I hope everybody else out there is ready for some time travel. Uh, Gee, the book that I brought to the book club was a time travel book. Who knew? So reading books two and three for next week of Recursion by Blake Crouch. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Our website is sandwiches at irregularhours.com. Our email is sandwiches at irregularhours at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Irregular Hours. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hassenplot. And I'm Pam Bedore. We'll see you in the future. Or is it in the past? The past. Oh. Memory is everything, guys. Have a great week. <laughs> <laughs>